welcome on this second Sunday of Easter. In the Christian calendar observed in many churches, Easter isn't just one day of the year. It's a season, seven Sundays, beginning on Easter Day, or Passover, as the early church called the resurrection, and running 50 days, 49, to Pentecost. We get a glimpse of this, I think, already in the New Testament. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, toward the end, he tells his Gentile converts about his travel plans through Pentecost. That's how he names the date. And he says that for people who didn't grow up observing the Jewish calendar, so he had to teach them that way of counting time. Earlier in that letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul refers to Christ as our Passover lamb, the, pa the Passover sacrifice of Christians, and he invites the Corinthians to celebrate the festival. Now, he's calling them to repentance in that passage, but if you look at it, I think it makes best sense if Paul anticipated that his letter would arrive at Corinth in time to be read on or before Passover on Easter Sunday, which the Corinthians would celebrate as a Christian festival. We know Christians are doing that. Christians in Rome and in uh, Ephesus are doing that by the early second century. We know that because they had an argument about what date uh, Passover should be observed on. Christians have always uh, found occasion to argue about things that were uh, important for us. Anyway, it looks to me like Paul's Corinthians uh, observed Easter, Passover, and Pentecost. So I'd suggest uh, that if we linger a few weeks in the vicinity of the empty tomb, if we let our thoughts continue to dwell on Jesus' resurrection and its aftermath these next few Sundays, well, once again, we're just doing Bible things in Bible ways. And if you recognized that slogan and smiled uh, just now, I'm afraid you have dated yourself, as I have. Last Sunday, we joined all the women who came to the tomb. This morning, we linger there with Mary. Mary of Magdala, Mary the Magdalene. That's a city in Galilee, recently excavated, including its synagogue, a synagogue that stood in the days of Jesus that Mary likely worshipped in. You can read all about that in a book that is presently on its way to Thessalonica with the rest of the Austin Grad Library through the good offices of Daniel Napier. Um, I've suggested that Daniel rename that collection Third Thessalonians. Uh, not sure whether that name will stick, but I'll keep suggesting. Mary was close to Jesus. She had been personally blessed by him. Luke, in his gospel, tell, tells us that Jesus had driven from her seven demons. The limit, as one of my teachers put it. He had blessed her, and she loved him. So, the on Easter Day, on the morning of resurrection, she finds his tomb empty, 
she's disturbed by this and goes to tell his male disciples. And now, after the visit of Peter and John to the tomb and their departure, now she lingers at the tomb in the garden, weeping because Jesus' body is gone and she doesn't know who's taken it or where it is. She is distraught and brought to tears over the absence of Jesus' physical presence. She's asked about this by two heavenly messengers. Why are you weeping? And then she turns from them to see Jesus, whom she doesn't recognize. The risen Jesus is like that. There's something different about him, something otherworldly. Mary imagines that the one she sees is the, t the caretaker of the garden, and she asks if he can tell her anything about the whereabouts of Jesus' body. Then he speaks. He speaks her name. Mary, he says. And the voice she hears falling on her ear discloses to her the Son of God standing before her, risen from the dead. Now she recognizes him. And she says to him, to him in the language the Hebrews spoke, the Jews spoke, Aramaic, really. She says, my master, my teacher. That's what Rabboni means. And it seems as if she reaches for him, which would be a natural enough thing to do in these circumstances. Wouldn't you want to hug Jesus if you were reunited in this way? And then he says something strange. Don't hold me. It's even a little harsher than that. Don't touch me. It's as if he puts his hands up to keep her at bay and to encourage her to maintain her distance. It seems just a bit harsh and unfeeling, doesn't it? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he so hold at arm's length one who was so devoted to him and so relieved to see that he lives again. He offers an explanation to her, but it's at first glance a bit confusing. Don't hold me, don't touch me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But you, Mary, go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my Father and yours, to my God and yours. But still, it's, it's kind of a baffling exchange. We may get a bit of clarity on it if we read on in the rest of John chapter 20. John proceeds in verses 19 and following to tell us how that same evening, Jesus' disciples were gathered in a room with the doors shut for fear of their neighbors, and suddenly the risen Christ was there in the room with them the very first locked door mystery. Jesus wishes them peace. He shows them his hands and his side with the wounds still visible from his crucifixion. And he charges them to continue his ministry. And then in what we might call a preview of Pentecost, Jesus breathes on them and invites them to receive from him the Holy Spirit, God's holy breath. And then, 
we read this, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in, in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It's not widely known, but Thomas was Jesus' disciple from Missouri, the show me state. His brother's testimony that Jesus lives isn't good enough for him. He's not going to believe this outlandish story, he says, unless he sees it for himself unless he can touch the traces of Jesus' wounds still visible on his body with his own hands and his fingers. And then the disciples gather Thomas among them, and Jesus appears and invites Thomas to do just as he had said he would need to to believe. And Thomas doesn't need to anymore. In the presence of the risen Christ, he finds he no longer needs to verify the evidence of his eyes by the use of his hands. And at the climax of the gospel, Thomas confesses Jesus, the word made flesh, crucified and risen from the dead, as my Lord and my God, the confession that the reader of the gospel is invited to share. And in reply, Jesus offers a comment, a blessing really, to Thomas that I think explains his earlier seemingly brusque words to Mary, or at least helps us understand them better. Thomas, you believe because of the evidence of your eyes. You believe because of what you have seen. Just as John, the author of the gospel, tells us in verse 8 that he, going with Peter to the tomb, saw Jesus' grave clothes collapsed in their place, as Mitch showed us in that wonderful last sermon that he shared with us. John saw that and believed. And there's nothing wrong with seeing and believing. But Jesus says there is an even greater blessing for those who have not seen me and yet believe, those who are in the position that you and I are in this morning and as believers in Christ. In these encounters, especially the encounter with Mary and the encounter with Thomas, Jesus is preparing his disciples for a big change that they are facing. He's been with them in the flesh now for two or three years, John tells us. They have learned from him and followed him, and he has taught them. They have seen the works of God done through his hands. But now... 
that phase of their relationship is coming to an end. The one who has been physically and visibly present with them will soon be present in a new way, not less powerfully, he says, but only spiritually and invisibly. Some of you remember my son Ben. Uh, now I'm very happy to say a teacher of political science at Abilene Christian. I had hoped he could find something better than higher ed to go into, but he didn't. Ben was four when we moved to Austin and our family was so warmly welcomed by this church. And one Sunday morning, I think, I think it was in just those first few months, we were entering uh, on the ground floor across from the parking lot and Ben was excited to see all his friends at church. There's Mr. Henniger, and there's Mrs. Henniger, there's Mr. Wright, and there's Mrs. Wright, and we passed by a classroom where Steve Brothers was sitting, uh, being about 30 years of age at that time, uh, with uh, a head of black hair and a black beard, and Ben calling the names of people that he knew from church, Mr. Henniger, Mrs. Henniger, Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, and there's Jesus. <laughs> ben thought we went to church where Jesus did. And in fact, in the physical sense, none of us goes to that church, as, as nice as it, as it would be. But in the spiritual sense, every Christian goes to the church that Jesus attends. The five chapters of, of John's gospel before the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, chapters 13 to 17, are all devoted to Jesus preparing his disciples for the time when he will leave them, when he won't be physically with them anymore. He's returning to the Father, and he says, yet a little while, and you will see me no longer. Jesus is working to prepare his disciples for a change in the way that he will be present among them until he returns to judge the living and the dead. There's an adjustment that the disciples are going to have to make. They're going to have to take on board a new situation. The force of this came home to me in reflecting on an embarrassing episode um, that occurred on the occasion Dylan mentioned when a number of us visited the Holy Land, uh, led there by Eddie Sharp. One of the sites that we visited with a throng of fellow pilgrims was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And on our pilgrimage, I was reading Jerome Murphy O'Connor's wonderful guide to the Holy Land, and I was persuaded by it that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre has the best claim to being the site of Jesus' tomb. There's a pretty good case that the Christians of Jerusalem preserved the memory of that site until a church was built on it in the fourth century. So our UA delegation entered the church together and we made our way to that spot. And then we passed on from there to one of the many chapels within the church where we had a few minutes to wait before we were to proceed to the next site we would visit that day. We visited two or three sites a day. We were there for 10 days and the trip is mostly a blur um, we saw a lot of cisterns, uh, I, I remember that. But here we are uh, in a chapel in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and as we waited, I became very excited at the thought that we had just seen the very place where 
Jesus' body was laid in the tomb, and I felt I just had to see it again. So I told Eddie, I'll be right back. And I hurried back to the tomb site and knelt again and prayed. And then I got up and started walking in the direction that I had come from. And I realized I had no way of telling the chapel where our group was waiting from any of the other chapels in that huge church. I hadn't counted the doors that I had passed. Uh, I have the same kind of trouble getting back to my car in the parking lot at Walmart or HEB. So I had a few minutes of panic as I furiously tried to remember something that would distinguish the chapel where our group was waiting. And then thankfully, Eddie emerged from one of the doors and pulled me back in among our flock. If you were on that trip, my sincere apologies for delaying our, progr our progress that day by five minutes. Looking back on that embarrassing occasion, it occurs to me that I could have used a reminder. I would have benefited from one of God's messengers, heavenly or earthly, reminding me of the words spoken at the tomb 2,000 years ago. He is not here. He is risen. This is just the place where that happened. And now, there is no closer fellowship to be had with Jesus than the fellowship we're offered at his table in the company of his brothers and sisters. If the church of the Holy Sepulchre does in fact mark the spot where Jesus' body lay, we are no closer to the living Jesus kneeling there than we are when we open the scriptures to hear his word or kneel before him in prayer here together at his table or at home. I could have used that reminder and it is something like that, I think, that Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples in John chapter 20 to Mary and to Thomas in particular. Today, as every Lord's Day, the risen Jesus meets us here at his table. He calls our name and he waits for us to respond. And he also appoints for us a task. He charges us to continue his ministry of grace and truth where we live and work and worship. And he promises to empower us to play our part in his mission, his mission and the Father's, to illumine a world that has sought darkness rather than light. He charges us to see others as he saw them, to look upon them as he looks upon us. He charges us to reach out to others with the healing power of God as he did, and he charges us to invite the world, our neighbors, everyone we have dealings with, into the same fellowship with his Father, into which he has brought us, and which we renew at his table today. That's the new reality, the new creation, into which the risen Lord welcomes us, and which we do our best to accept every Lord's Day, and in this season of Easter. As we did last week, let's proclaim Christ's resurrection to one another and to the world. Do you remember your line? It's, he is risen indeed. And so, Christ is risen. Alleluia.